these iconic songs that we've been doing, which have been kind of like the song book of our lives, just, just together looking at uh, some of the greatest songs ever written, we had not hit a number one until this morning. We are finally going to share with you a number one song. It is from the year 1965. Even I wasn't alive back then. I probably just offended some folks, though, so I want to apologize right now. And apparently, um, Keith Richards was in a hotel room. And it's funny, a lot of these songs get written in hotel rooms. Um, I'm not going to make any further comments other than that. But he was in a hotel room, and uh, uh, it was the 60s, and it was all, uh, a lot of countercultural movement stuff going on. And uh, the TV was on, and it was blaring all of these messages about, what, about how you should act and how you should be. And it was mostly a consumeristic message. You'll see in the lyrics of the songs, there's things in here about laundry detergent and what kind of cigarettes you smoke as if that would make you a man. And he was sitting around uh, in that room that one night, and he thought, this is ridiculous because none of this stuff can satisfy. There's a spiritual message there. In fact, one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible comes um, from God through the prophet Jeremiah, where he says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns, but they're broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And so Mick and the boys caught on to this um, sometime in the 60s. And this song has grown uh, to be, uh, I think it's ranked by Billboard, as the number two song of all time. Um, because it has a spiritual truth that still resonates in us. Apart from Christ, no matter where you look, you just can't get no satisfaction. Now, Tim has been working on lip transplants this week. Um, <laughs> implants, implants. He's been sucking on like a bottle thing, trying to get them to... to but that's as close as, uh, as, close as it's going to get for him. If you'd like, I'd love for you to get up out of your seats and join the band uh, and sing along. And, you know, you're the chorus, right? So I can't get no? Let's do it. Jim moves on like Jagger.
All right, grab a seat. All right, as the band comes down, we need to transition. Give them a hand one more time. Clapping is a great transition. Uh, all right, so before I start, make some presumptions. Uh, you know, only God knows where the heart is. Uh, so I'm not making any final judgments on where people are going to end up or any of that. Um, so that's one. Two is, uh, I, you know, hopefully most of you believe that answers to life are in this book. Um, and so today I'm going to set up uh, some questions and then we're going to look at the answers in that book. So we're going to talk about the question first, though. So if you're waiting like, okay, are we going to have any Bible this morning in there? It's coming. Okay, be patient. And we're going to set up the question so that when we look at the Scripture, we find the answer. Good? All right. So, um, you know, as I got started this week uh, looking at uh, the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, I, to be honest, you know, I wasn't born in 1965. Not even, like, John, you were clo close. <laughs> Uh, I'm not even close. Um, but as I'm looking at them, you know, and, and listening to some of the music, I'm going, oh, I know that song. That's wrong. Oh, I know that song. Uh, and it's because Rolling Stones have been an all-time great band. Uh, you could say, some would say they are the greatest band or one of the greatest bands of all time. Uh, and this is, if they were the greatest band, their greatest song. Uh, they had already released three albums before this fourth one, uh, but this was the first one, the song, to hit number one in the United States. Um, and um, as it gets released, uh, it just takes off. Um, and so as they talk about, as John kind of alluded to, they, they are coming to America and seeing a culture that they would say is consumeristic. Um, and so in some of the lyrics, right, we sang them, you see them talking about it. When I'm driving in my car and a man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information, supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no, oh, no, no, no. Hey, 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 that's what I say. I can't get no satisfaction. So they're talking about consumerism, um, but what's kind of fascinating as, you know, you're studying and trying to look at the background and why they wrote things is the reason this song even came out as it is, is kind of consumeristic to begin with. Uh, they are traveling. I was reading from 63, uh, 64, 65, 66. They never stopped. They just kept touring month Day after day, month after month, year after year, they never stopped. And so they're writing all of these songs as they are continuing the tour. And as, you know, they would have it that, you know, they have to produce. And so this song comes up and, you know, that kind of distorted guitar riff that you hear, that was never intended to be what the song sounded like. In fact, uh, Keith Richards says that that was a placeholder for the horn section. Uh, that that was going to be horns that were played. But they recorded it, and their producer, manager, 10 days later, puts it out. 
They thought they were producing a demo so that they could keep working on it. But the culture demanded, right, wanted new songs, new stuff. And so they put it out and it starts to skyrocket. Now, why we kind of said that this song is about consumerism, I would also say at, at some level, uh, it also talks to a deeper feeling uh, that they have in their life. Um, Keith Richards had said that one night as uh, he went to bed uh, and, and, he, and he goes to bed and he wakes up and there's a cassette in the recorder uh, and he pushes play and during the night, you know, I don't know what kind of things were going on, uh, but during the night, he played the guitar riff and came out with that line, I can't get no satisfaction. I found that fascinating as I'm thinking about it, that in his sleep or dreams or hallucinations, whatever, right? In the middle of that, this is what is produced. I can't get no satisfaction. And it's become the band's kind of, Big song, their anthem uh, of the band. You know, a band that many would say, uh, right, is this the great band, uh, that this is their anthem. And it's kind of funny to me to think about that they're singing about, I can't get no satisfaction. Yet in world standards, if we look at them, they have everything, right? They have power and prestige. They have money and wealth and fame, but they lived some rough lives, right? If you look at them today, like, right, they are, they're rough shape, still going, but rough shape. Uh, and it's because, you know, their life was, as one writer kind of said, if he was gonna give a list of what their life was about, he said, fame, songs, concerts, violence, women, drugs, death, and ruined lives. In comparison, like uh, looking back at their lives and looking at today's like pop stars and kind of their debauchery, like they make pop stars of today look soft at the stuff that was, they were doing and what was going on. Uh, I mean, they were living a hard lifestyle. And now, you know, many have them on the top of the list, but you can be sure if your kids ever came up to me, you know, and said, you know, Steve, I love music and I, I need role models in music. Who should be my role models? Rolling Stones would not make my list. Uh, you know, they, they wouldn't make my top five. They are uh, someone I'm not going to encourage, like, their lifestyle because it's contrary to kind of everything as Christians we believe. But there is some deep truth in this song, and we're going to look at it. Let me set this up um, as I kind of make my first point. Um, you know, as they, the band, seems to have everything, um, seems to have everything they want in the moment. Uh, we look at this idea that sometimes happiness in the moment, okay, on this side, if this is happiness in the moment, does not translate to satisfaction in your life. Maybe long-term satisfaction. Let me say this again, right? Happiness in the moment, your, your kind of fleeting happiness, the, the everyday kind of happiness you have, does not mean when you look back back at that, you are going to be satisfied with your life. Nobel Prize winner and author uh, Daniel Kahneman put it this way. He said, happiness is being happy in your life, but satisfaction is being happy about your life. Two different things. Let me say it again. Happiness is being happy 
in your life, kind of in the moment, but satisfaction is being happy about your life when you look back at it. They're two totally different things. I'll give you the example. Let's say some of you probably, well, none of you good Christians, but some uh, maybe drive down to Atlantic City and they decide that they want to uh, partake in, in the games and the fun and so they're going to the tables and the slots and maybe they had a drink or two and they're hearing people yell, winner, winner, and, and, the, and the bells and the whistles and it's a good time. They're happy in the moment. But then they wake up in the morning. They go to get breakfast and there's no money in their wallet. And their credit cards are maxed out. They got now their mortgage on their house, you know, like they got a lien on their house. They put everything into this for the night. And in the night, they might have said, oh, that was awesome. I'm happy in the moment, right? But if you lost everything gambling, you would come over on this side and look and go like, not very satisfied with my decisions, right? Not very happy with my decisions. This works the opposite way as well. And I'll give you the story. Um, how many of you have ever tried to potty train a two-year-old? Got a couple of you guys? Yeah, you know my pain. Uh, currently, I am trying to potty train our youngest, Kobe. Uh, he's two. And so at home, we're now putting him, you know, in his little underwear uh, and trying to teach him to go on the toilet. And uh, it's, it's been challenging. Um, and when we go out, you know, because he, he's not there yet, we still put him in like a pull-up or a diaper. And so this literally just happened last Saturday. My wife is working. I need to take the boys and run some errands. And so I'm looking around the house going, whoa, you know, where's, where's a diaper? Where's a pull-up? I got to put them in something. So I find one and I throw it on them. He had just went to the bathroom. I'm like, I'll be great. So I put them in the car and we go to run errands and we're in the store. And in a couple minutes, he starts walking like this. <laughs> you know this walk? And I'm like, Kobe. Did you go potty? Yeah. You know, so I look, I'm like, oh, kind of look down the back of the pants. Oh, it's okay. He just peed. We'll be fine. So I pick him up and I set him in the car, in the cart, and we keep going. Well, he's whining after a couple of minutes, and so I pull him back out and I set him down to run with his brother. And the seat is all wet. And I'm so confused. And I'm like, how? You know, like he has a diaper on. Like what? Well, you know what a swimmy diaper is? <laughs> Let me tell you something. They don't hold anything. Um, so next time you see that little toddler in your pool with that, that's like an illusion. Everything's coming out of there. And so my seat was sopping wet because it didn't hold anything. His pants are wet. His shirt is wet. So I'm now in the middle of Walmart with this, pee-stained child. And so I run. I'm like, okay, what can I do? I don't have anything in the car. I didn't bring anything with me. And so I go, I get, you know, a pack of diapers. I get some wipes. I go get some shorts and a t-shirt. Then we go to the family bathroom. Prescott, me, Kobe, and I pull us all in there. I start pulling these things off and, and I'm going and wiping them down, putting new clothes on them. I'm looking at the clothes. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with these? So then I'm like, maybe I just pitch him. Like, I'll just throw him away. And then my wife is meticulous with things. And I'm like, no, she'll know. Like, <laughs> she'll find out. And she'll be like, do you, you know, 
You always tell me to budget and save and you threw away. So I'm like, okay, I'll just take them out with me. And then as we're getting out of the bathroom, I'm terrified that like there's going to be like some security guard in there asking like, why'd you take, uh, you know, these change of clothes in there? And he didn't, he came out wearing them. Well, he's got the, like the price sticker down his leg here and on his back. So as we get to the cashier, who's this 19-year-old guy, you know, I get there and I basically have to hand him, press Kobe, and like scan him across and, oh, get the back of his shirt. Um, you know, and he's like just looking at me like I'm failing as a dad, right? And then as I'm walking out, of course, I see somebody from church, you know, that's Eric, hi. <laughs> you know, with his stickers all over him. And, but so... In the moment, I was not happy with this, right? This, this was not a happy time. Uh, this kind of ruined the trip and, and, and everything. But as far as long-term life satisfaction, I could put up with that over there. Because what I couldn't put up with is like a 15-year-old with that same problem, right? Like never training him. And at 15, he's like, this would not be good. And so I know that in the moment, doesn't always necessarily, uh, you know, the impact of that looks different in the long term. The happiness in the moment uh, does not necessarily mean life satisfaction, especially in long term. Um, and this is what is talked about. Um, and see, most of you probably at least understand this concept through your experiences. You've understood that sometimes in the moment, what is happy or sad will look different later on when I get some perspective, when I look back at it. And so what made me happy then might not actually make me satisfied now. And what was sad back then actually might lead to some satisfaction as I look back on it. So the question then uh, kind of comes up is, well, if we keep chasing this, this kind of moment of happiness, and I mean, that's what everything is sold to you, is that you'll be happy in the moment. I mean, everything in life is doing that. Every product is saying that, hey, if you get me, if you get this product, like, you'll be happy. And so maybe we buy into that. But no matter how many, like, ads that I see on late night television and, you know, I buy the, that's not going to satisfy me. And so as a culture, if the Rolling Stones kind of hit it, that our culture is this consumeristic culture of trying to be happy and, and the, by the things we get, what happens when we get to the satisfaction part and we're singing the song just like the Rolling Stones did, I can't get no satisfaction. Let me give you some numbers that I found, you know, staggering. Um, 43,000 people last year committed suicide in our country alone. And for every one that committed suicide, 25 others attempted. That's over a million people saying, like, I'm not satisfied with life, right? Maybe I don't have meaning for life. I can't handle this life. A million people last year alone. I think it's like, it's, it's, we're at like a 30-year high right now. One of the highest age groups, which really surprised me as uh, I work with teens and I know kind of some of the rates of 
teen suicide and, and why uh, they go through that as they're kind of coming into adolescence and trying to figure out who they are, and, and that can be kind of a, a turbulent time. Uh, it's not teens that are the highest, but rather 45 to 64-year-olds, almost twice the rate of a teen. One person said that uh, the reason this is because they've bought into the lie that says happiness is in the moment. And if happiness is in the moment, that will mean long-term satisfaction, but it doesn't. And so by the time, and I've even started to see this in my own life, my choices, and I'm starting to look back at my life of going, I might have been happy in the moment, but man, am I not satisfied. So just kind of moving along logically, if this happiness in the moment isn't going to bring satisfaction. What's going to bring satisfaction? What's going to bring purpose and meaning to my life? I found uh, this book called Man's Search for Meaning. It was written in 1946 uh, by this guy named Viktor Frank Frankl. Uh, he was a prominent Jewish uh, psychiatrist at the time. And in 1942, uh, he's arrested in Vienna and taken to a Nazi concentration camp with his family um, his, his wife, his parents, uh, and, it's, and he's there for three years. And he finally gets liberated, and he survived, but his pregnant wife and the rest of his family didn't. Um, and so he writes this book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, talking about his experience. And he said this, uh, and he concluded that the difference between those that lived and those that died came down to one thing, meaning. Those that lived, in his opinion, those that died came down to one thing, meaning. As he saw it in the camps, those who found meaning, even in the most just awful circumstances were far more resilient to suffering than those who did not. They had a purpose to be there. They had a meaning to live. He says, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any set of circumstances. Says he worked with uh, many people as he was a psychiatrist. They came to him uh, that were suicidal, that wanted to end their life. Um, and he said what he had to convey and uh, what he tried to help them understand uh, was that they were there, that they had a purpose, that there was a plan for them, uh, that there was stuff in the future for them to do that only they could do whether it was for someone or some work that needed to be completed. And here's a quote I'm going to give you. I'll put it up on the screen. It's a little lengthy, but stay with me. Uh, I, I kept reading it over and over this week, uh, and it just re really spoke to me. He says this, This uniqueness and singleness which distinguishes each individual gives a meaning to his existence has a bearing on creative work as much as it does on human love. When the impossibility of replacing a person is realized, it allows the responsibility which a man has for his existence and its continuance to appear in all its magnitude. Now hear this. 
A man who becomes conscious of his responsibility he bears towards a human being who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence and will be able to bear almost any how. Let me read that last two statements again. A man who becomes conscious of his responsibility he bears towards a human being who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence and it will be able and he will be able to bear almost any how. I found that fascinating as he's talking about people surviving the Holocaust, right? These, these camps. That if they understood their importance, their uniqueness, that they could put up, if they understood the why, they could put up with any how. So then the question is, what's the why? What's the meaning? What's the purpose? And this is where I promised you we'd, we'd, we'd look in here. You know, if... If for those of you that say you're Christians in the room, uh, for myself, if I look at our world and I'm looking it through, we kind of call it the Christian worldview, which just means as Christians, how do we view this world? Well, we view it as that we were created, right? That it was not chance, uh, but that God created us. That, right, well, there's verses all over scripture about him knitting us together, that he knows the hairs on your head, for some of you like me, the lack of hairs on your head. He knows this and he created you and he created you with purpose. In Ephesians 2.10, um, it says this, for we are God's handiwork, right? He created us, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If we are looking at the answer to scripture of meaning, it says that we are created. We're not chance. We're here for a reason. And that reason, he has actually prepared ahead of time work for you to do. I mean, look, even before the fall, when you look at Adam, Adam's placed in the garden and then what? He's given a job to take care of the land and the animals, right? God has stuff for us to do. He has stuff for you to do. My first job was at a little ice cream stand. And um, I would have to routinely take out all the trash uh, and hose down the picnic tables. And, you know, if I ever came to my boss and the boss says, hey, Steve, you know, get the power washer and spray all the ice cream off the tables. And if I ever said, like, why or can't someone else do it, what would his response be? His response would be, no, this is why I hired you. This is the very reason you have this job is to do this work. It's the same as God created you. God created you with work ahead of time for you to do. Good work. So what's some of that work? We find the answer uh, in this next passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. 
and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Part of the good work that we have is the message of reconciliation. To define that, the restoration of friendly relationships, restoring right relationship. Our job, the good work, the message that we've been given is the message of reconciliation. Taking what's far apart and bringing it together. Taking people who are far from God. And you know, this is part of the crazy thing between God and us that he's given us this. Like God could and can obviously do it all by himself. But you get to play a role in it. I get to play a role in it. And it's an important role. And it's a role that has been mapped out for you individually, for me individually. To be people of reconciliation, to reconcile all things. People to God, people to people, relationships. The best example I saw in this is actually uh, quite current. Um, it's uh, through the Olympics. My son and I have been watching it, probably like a lot of you. Uh, every night, Prescott goes, can we watch the Olympics? I mean, we're watching ping pong and sailing and stuff that we normally would never watch, but he's fascinated by it. I'm fascinated to hear the stories of the athletes. Um, and the one athlete that we're going to talk about and then watch a video is Michael Phelps. Now, most of you know who, you know who he is. You don't need to watch the Olympics. You've heard his name. Um, but I want to show you a small segment of, of, of a thing they did on him. Uh, and, and let me set it up this way so that you kind of know where this, this video was and then you can watch the segment that we have for you. Um, Michael Phelps, you know, this all-time great Olympian, um, the story starts with him. He is a child of divorce. Uh, his parents divorced when he was nine. Um, he grew distant from his father, um, felt abandoned by his father, and over time had very little contact with his dad. Uh, rarely speaking or seeing him. Uh, and it says that he tried to bury himself in swimming. Um, he tried to find happiness in the pursuit of swimming. Um, and his coach even said that when Michael was his coach from 11 years old to now, that when Michael was having a bad day in the pool uh, and he would question him about it or had some sort of emotional outburst, it always came back, if they went far enough, to something about his dad, some issue with his dad, and the feeling of abandonment. And so Michael plugs away at becoming the greatest Olympian of all time, winning gold after gold after gold, right? Four years ago in London, he says, I'm done, I'm retiring, but it leaves him, he says, in a terrible place. He had pursued this happiness in, in swimming, this satisfaction in swimming. But when it was done, he said he was a wreck. Let me give you the quote that he says. After retiring in London, his life was a mess. He said, I was a train wreck. I was just like a time bomb waiting to go off. I had no self-esteem, no self-worth. This is what the, the greatest Olympian that we have known of all time, this is what he's saying. I have no self-esteem and no self-worth. There was times I didn't want to be here. It wasn't good. I was just so lost. Where do I go from here? What do I do now? 
story continues that after London, uh, some of you probably have followed this, uh, he got into a little bit of trouble. He started drinking pretty heavily, uh, and it kind of uh, comes to this point. He gets his second DUI um, in 2014, um, is arrested. He's like twice over the legal limit, um, and he thinks his life is over. He says, after that, I shut myself in a, in a room for five days. I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. And I thought that life would be better without me. The best thing I could do would be to end my life. This is what he's saying. Some friends and family step in, talk to him about going to rehab, saying, you know, you, we need to get this under control. So he decides, he's at his lowest point. He said he's ever been in life, decides to go to rehab. And here's the story uh, from that point on. Lewis and others close to Phelps eventually convinced him to seek help at the Meadows, a behavioral rehabilitation facility just outside Phoenix. Got into a car, shaking in the car, shaking when I got there, scared this. And I started texting my mom saying I was afraid for the first time in my life. I was out of my comfort zone. I didn't like that. I think when you find your lowest point in your life, I think you're kind of open to a lot of things to try to change it and to try to get back on the right path. I was just surrendering. For 45 days at the Meadows, Phelps worked on his inner demons for the first time. Between therapy sessions, Phelps often swam in a pool, far too confining for an 18-time Olympic champion. I would take two strokes and get to the other side. So I was like, well, don't really know what I'm gonna do in here. I just started doing drills, flip turns, working on kick. I got yelled at for wearing a brief. Couldn't wear a brief, so I had to find something else to wear. Phelps also buried himself in a book Ray Lewis had given him the purpose-driven life. It's turned me into believing that there is a power greater than myself and there is a purpose for me on this planet. Second, third day he got in and he called me. He was like, I, man, this book is crazy. He was like, the things that's going on, oh my gosh, my brain is, bro, I'm, 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 I cannot thank you freaking enough, man. Like, you saved my life. And so that was the moment when I started to hear he coming out of it. He, he, will, he will make it. And then he started calling me with things he was reading from the book, and I was like, it's sinking in. For a long time, I thought I was to bring the family back together, baby. My therapist said, well, you failed. How does that feel? And then I read this, and I was like, you know what? <laughs> I think it helped me when I was in a place where I needed the most help. The lessons learned in those pages and in therapy convinced Phelps to try to rebuild his relationship with his father, Fred. They were gonna have a family week and I was invited to come spend the time with him, which I immediately jumped on. RSVP'd I'd be there. Why? He's my son. 
I love it. I was shocked. I wasn't even going to invite him to family week. I just didn't think he would come. And I, I guess it was to the point where I was just like, why do I just want another no in my life? I was apprehensive is not the word. Maybe scared. Not at what I would find, but how I would be received, which actually I, it was fear that was unfounded. Because we saw each other, we shook hands, threw our arms around each other, gave a big hug. It was good, challenging at times, but uh, probably the biggest learning experience that we could have with one another, about one another, that we've ever had in our lives. It was eye to eye contact, okay, here's what I got to say and here's what I need to ask. And it was honesty, both ways. I didn't want to have that what if. That's something that's so big for me. You know, I never wanted to go through my life and God forbid not have the chance to be able to share emotions that I wanted to share with him. It's kind of what I missed as a kid. What was the hardest part of the time you were there? Leaving. Why? Because I had my son back. Just didn't want to leave him. I had something back that I didn't know I would get back. When it did, there was love. Doesn't get better than that. I can't speak to where Michael Phelps is with God, and, uh, but I can look at some of the changes uh, that have been talked about him, that have been shown. Um, you know, he has... This year was his first year uh, that he was ever elected team captain for the Olympics. Uh, he's been to, this is his fifth Olympics. Never, you know, because the team, the other, the other Olympians are the ones that, uh, you know, select the captain. And they said that he was always a loner, never about the team, never about uh, other people. Uh, he pushed people away. Uh, but this year something had changed. His longtime coach had said he was skeptical as Phelps came out of there saying he had been changed. Uh, but he said he's a different person. Um, right? Rest, uh, reconciliation. Right? That's, that's the job we've been given. You see the power in that. Giving purpose and meaning. Phelps said, um, I know the only person I can control in any situation is myself. He said that I have a renewed outlook on life to mending relationships with friends and family who I've pushed away. Can I read you 2 Corinthians again? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation.
Don't buy into the hype that possessions, titles, work, uh, your, your accolades, your power, your prestige can bring you satisfaction. They might bring you momentary happiness, but when you look back, like, I don't want my life anthem to be, I can't get no satisfaction. Jesus reminds us in Luke, he said, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Don't buy into that. Band, you want to come up? And I'll close uh, with this. Um, you heard Michael Phelps going, uh, saying the word surrender. I like that part. Uh, because it's surrendering maybe over to a new idea of what my life should look like. It's surrendering over to a new idea about actually what's good for me, what will bring me satisfaction. Because the new creation doesn't happen without surrender. I found this interesting when listening to songs by the Rolling Stones um, 30 years later in 1998, well, 30 years plus from that No Satisfaction song, um, they came out with the song, Saint of Me. And in it, they sing about uh, how Paul from the Bible used to have all these, pro, you know, he was persecuting Christians, but then God changed them and turned them around. They sing about the theologian Augustine and how he had his problems and God turned them around. And then at the end of the song, the lyrics go like this. And I do believe in miracles, and I want to save my soul. I know that I'm a sinner, and I'm going to die here in the cold. I said, yes, I said, yeah. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll never make a saint out of me. And the chorus goes over and over, you'll never make a saint out of me. God can change you. You have to be willing to surrender, though, to change, to going, I can change. He will give you a reason, a purpose, and when you're sitting there and life uh, isn't going how you had planned, it gives you a bigger perspective on things. Don't make the song, I can't get no satisfaction, your anthem. But it starts with realizing that God is the creator, that he has the reason, the meaning, the purpose to my life. Let me leave you with these two thoughts that just, you know, kept kind of running over in my mind. Current situational happiness is not always a factor on long-term life satisfaction. So quit chasing it. Quit selling your life for it. Two, understanding your purpose and meaning for life will change how you view your current happiness or sadness. To say what... Um, uh, we, current, we said just a little bit ago, Frankel wrote, if you understand the why, you can put up with any how. And let me add to that. If you can understand the why, you can put up with any how, and it gives new perspective to the now. Understanding purpose and meaning in your life will give you all new perspective on the how and the now. Would you rise and sing uh, as we ask God to give us faith?